You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. And spring is in the air. The weather is turning warm outside. Maybe there's a little bit of green grass starting to peak up. Things are pretty good, David. Indeed. Looking beautiful. And we've got another history podcast here. It's not an anniversary this time. Our last episode, if you missed it, was a special 75th anniversary of The Great Escape. You can go back and check that one out wherever you listen to podcasts. That was fun, but this one's not an anniversary, right, Dave? Nope, it's not. All right, but I'm sure it is still a great story. So I have to ask you the question that's in the title of the podcast. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil... It's 399 BC, and in the city of Athens, Socrates, the famous philosopher, is standing, faced by a jury of his peers, and today he learns that he has been condemned to die. All right, so we're way back in time, David, 399 BC. I always love these podcasts where we go way back to the uh, ancient history stories. So why has Socrates been condemned to die? Well, the charges at his trial are corrupting the youth of Athens, impiety, and God into the city without a permit. I have to say, David, these don't sound like charges that you would see on Law & Order SVU. Like, I don't think these are still charges today. They sound a little bit sketchy to me. Well, even in Socrates' time, these charges wouldn't have been common or expected. But Socrates himself was something of a celebrity. And in many ways, these charges, the formal charges he's been brought up on, are a front, sort of, for deeper political reasons why his enemies want Socrates dead. Are you saying this was a bit of a witch hunt, David? Was there collusion? This was, in some ways, a bit of a witch hunt, and it derives from an earlier allegedly politicized trial, which led to quite a bit of collusion with foreign powers, as we'll discuss. Okay, well, we'll try and stay away from any modern political comparisons. Uh, So let's go back to ancient Greece and talk about Socrates some more, David. Uh, Tell us a little bit why did they want to put Socrates up on these charges? Why did they want to get him, even if they had to make up some somewhat uh, sketchy charges to do so? Well, the first thing that you have to understand about Athens in 399 BC is that Only a very short time earlier, Athens had lost a war, the Peloponnesian War. That's a big war, right? I've heard of that one. That's a very big war, one of the largest ever in ancient Greece, the famous final showdown between Sparta and the Athenian Empire. And Athens is the loser, Sparta's the winner. So what does that have to do with Socrates? Well, in the aftermath of the war, people are looking around for a reason why they lost, for somebody to blame. 
and there's one man who stands out in our records of the time as being famous in Athens especially, as being exceptionally talented, and as being a big reason why Athens lost. So we need to talk about Alcibiades. Okay, so let's talk about him, David. Who was he? So Alcibiades was the son of two of Athens' most wealthy and prominent noble families. And then his parents died when he was very young, and he was taken in by his uncle, who was the famous statesman Pericles, who was sort of the best-known, most powerful politician in Athens of the period. So he was very famous from birth, basically, in Athens. Okay, so he's this famous guy right from birth. Why does he stand out as the scapegoat of the Athenian loss in the Peloponnesian War? Well, to tell you that story, I need to start by talking about the god Hermes' penis. The god Hermes' what? His penis. I really didn't think that was going to come up here today, David. This is a bit of a strange turn that this podcast has taken. Why, why does the god Hermes' penis come into this? So in Athens, the god Hermes was a very important local god, and they had statues of him for good luck around the various neighborhoods of Athens, not just one statue, over 300 statues of Hermes. They really liked this guy. And the one thing that they all had in common for good luck was a big, erect penis. Hey, art is art, I suppose. So one night in 415 BC, somebody broke off roughly 200 or so, our numbers aren't exact here, but more than you would expect on a normal night of these penises. Somebody managed to break off over 200 erect penises from statues of a god in a single night in Athens. So the Athenians, quite reasonably, believed that there had been a conspiracy to do this, an organized group of people had done it, which immediately led to the question, who was to blame? David, this would make like a great true crime podcast if it happened in this day and age, I think. Um, I can just imagine what would happen if someone managed to organize this sort of vandalism spree today. How did it unfold back then? Well, actually, this is one of the, I won't say great mysteries, but one of the enduring mysteries of the history of ancient Greece. It becomes a very confused and tangled story. The, there's a major investigation in Athens into who did it. People, for some reason, decide that it was probably done by pro-Spartan, pro-oligarchy conspirators, but then they can't agree who. Um, the guy who leads the trials, which are denounced uh, as being unfair and biased, or in modern terminology, a witch hunt, will later turn out to be pro-oligarchy himself, so that's super weird and mysterious. 
but for our purposes, we're talking about Alcibiades. And Alcibiades, at this point, has just become a general in Athens, has just gotten his first command, is going off to lead a major expedition in the Peloponnesian War, and he's probably very excited and all of that, but he leaves Athens in the midst of the investigation. And shortly after he leaves, there's a shocking twist because some somewhat dubious sources come forward and accuse Alcibiades himself of having been behind it. So he is now suspected to be the penis vandal of Athens. Is there any real suspicion that it might have actually been him, David? Well, based on the investigation as it goes on in Athens, they actually begin to believe that maybe he didn't do it, but maybe he did. And even to this day, there's people who think maybe he did. But it becomes really clear that he definitely didn't believe in the Greek gods and behind closed doors had been very impious and whatnot didn't agree with the religion of the time. So even if he didn't do it, there's reason to suspect that by the standards of the Athenians, he's a criminal. Right. He might have had a reason not to love the fact that there were 300 statues with erect penises scattered throughout the town since he didn't quite get along with those gods. Exactly. So what happens to Alcibiades, David? So Alcibiades, as I've mentioned, has left town leading an expedition as a general. Well, technically as a co-general, he's got another guy who's also in command of this expedition, and it's not going so well. But this expedition was massive, by the way, and it was sent all the way to Sicily off the coast of Italy, which by ancient Greek standards is the far edge of the world is very far away and the Athenians as they come to suspect that Alcibiades was behaving criminally and also as news comes back that the Sicilian expedition is not going well decide that Alcibiades should be recalled back to Athens for trial and they send a boat out to bring him back but he has an army with him. Is he going to just go peacefully back on this boat, David, to face trial? Or is he going to maybe try and fight this? Well, he's got an army, but remember, he's got a co-general he doesn't get along with who might turn on him. But he also doesn't want to go back to Athens. So he decides instead that he's going to take his most loyal followers, grab a ship of his own, and instead of heading for Athens, he's going to desert. To Sparta. Oh, that's probably not the best of moves, so he's going to join the Spartan side now, this famous Greek general. He's joining the Spartans, and he's bringing a bunch of top-secret Athenian military information with him. And for Athens, this is a disaster. Yeah, I can see why. That's really not good, having one of your top guys go to the other side with all of his knowledge and everything he knows about your plans and what you're trying to do. So is this the reason that Athens loses the war to Sparta, David? 
Well, there's actually going to be a lot of twists and turns in this story, which connect up to Alcibiades' career. I'm going to try and go through a few of the highlights before we come back to how this relates to Socrates. So, to start off, Alcibiades flees to Sparta, but then he decides to sleep with the wife of one of the Spartan kings and only barely manages to flee Sparta in ahead of being arrested and executed for that. He flees to Persia, the traditional enemy of both Athens and Sparta, but then he doesn't like it because he's not in charge or very important. So then, by this point, Athens is doing poorly in the war, mostly because of all the top-secret information Alcibiades gave to the Spartans. So he tries to go back to Athens by promising that he can get the Persians to ally with the Athenians, but then the democratic government of Athens doesn't like his proposed deal, so he tries to get involved in a pro-oligarchy, pro-Spartan coup in Athens, with his promises of Persian support. But then they find out that he was lying all along about the Persian support, and there is none. And then he's trapped on this island where the pro-democracy forces happen to rally. And then he convinces the pro-democracy forces about his whole song and dance about secret Persian support. So they join him, and they overthrow the oligarchy which has been established in Athens by the previous coup plotters he was working with, but then they also find out that this Persian support was a lie all along, but this time he's realized why his plan was about to go bad, and he tries to establish his own kingdom in Turkey, and it gets very confusing for a while, uh, but then he gets executed by a combined Persian-Spartan force, which crushes his brief kingdom because, okay, I feel like I've made this very confusing, have I? I'm completely lost, David. I'm going to be quite honest. This guy had quite the life. Uh, so the core points here are he was generally viewed in Athens as being competent, like he showed skill in what he did and people admired maybe not what he chose to do, but the skill he was able to demonstrate when he did what he chose to do. It sounds like he was good at getting out of tight spots, David. Like, he uh, could talk his way out of just about anything based on what you've told us. It is kind of hard to explain sometimes how Alcibiades manages to survive and sometimes thrive even though he's doing utterly ridiculous, crazy things. But also... The Athenians view him as the cause of their downfall, both because he gave military information to Sparta, and then because he helped to overthrow their government twice, which is a fairly reasonable kind of feeling when you stop and think about it. It definitely seems like he was maybe not great for the Athenian war effort in the Peloponnesian War. But all of this might never have happened, David, if somebody hadn't, in the dead of night, broken a god's penis off of 200 statues. If they hadn't done that, you know, he very well might have kept fighting for the Athenians the whole time. Exactly. So the Athenians view the problem as being 
his impiety. There was this big scandal about impiety, and even at the time, most Athenians don't really know what happened, but definitely you've got Alcibiades was definitely impious, and then that led him to being suspected in this big weird crime, and then that made him go bad. So if you're an Athenian trying to figure out where did all this start, one question that might be on your mind was, why did Alcibiades become impious? Right. Back then, pretty much everyone followed religion, right, David? It wasn't, being an atheist wasn't a common thing like it might be today. So people are wondering, how did he come not to follow the god Hermes, who we have 300 statues of in our town? You'd think, for goodness sakes, with that many statues, it'd be hard to uh, ignore him. People are looking for somebody who's maybe old and weird and suspicious and spends his time teaching youth and also asking strange questions of important people in the marketplace who might have had some kind of connection to Alcibiades who, you know, could have led him on a wrong path, could have to just use a casual phrase that has nothing to do with Socrates, corrupted this youth. I think I see where you're going with this, David. This seems to be tying back to those original charges against Socrates. We're definitely seeing why the Athenian people would have been especially prepared to view somebody as a corrupter of youth and impious. So the next question we have to ask is, was there some connection that the people of Athens might have known about between Socrates and Alcibiades? Right, they still need to tie him to actually corrupting the youth. So what do they come up with? Well, unfortunately for Socrates, quite a while before all of this happened, well, both of them were quite a bit younger. Socrates and Alcibiades might have been sleeping together for a while. Ah, oh, that does seem like a connection. And it might have been so famously public that the famous comic playwright Aristophanes actually included it in one of his plays as a, you know, sort of joking well-known affair between two kind of famous people. Right, so this is so well-known, it's basically like it was in the TMZ of the time. Everybody knows about this and that it happened. This affair was pretty public at the time, and at the time, Socrates didn't really have a reason why he wouldn't want to bring up his connection to this wealthy, famous kid, you know? But now it's going to come back to haunt him. But now he's going to face a trial, and his issue is, yeah, he's got this connection that he's got to downplay. Luckily, he's got a very public weapon. Which is? So at the end of the Peloponnesian Wars, just to make things more confusing, there was an oligarchic pro-Spartan coup in Athens. It was defeated by a brave pro-democracy resistance. Then Sparta won the war, 
and imposed an oligarchic pro-Spartan government again, which then got beaten again by a brave pro-democracy resistance. Democracy keeps winning. That's a good thing, David. Well, in the aftermath of all of this, for the Athenian people, it was really hard to find any family who hadn't ended up with at least some of their members on the oligarchy side at least once in the whole mess. So there was a general amnesty declared, and it included a pretty strong ban on bringing up oligarchy-related topics during criminal trials. Okay, so people were worried that their own family members were going to get caught up in this, so they just said, well, we're not going to talk about it at criminal trials. Exactly. You can't be charged. So the guys who don't like Socrates, who want to put him on trial for what they feel he's done, can't explicitly say that this is all about Alcibiades, that he worked with, where he taught, or he corrupted Alcibiades specifically. But that doesn't mean they can't bring him to trial. They just have to find some charges that they can bring up that will make everybody remember the big famous things that they want them to remember without ever actually saying the name Alcibiades and also Hermes Penis. So they come up with corrupting the youth, impiety, and importing a foreign god? Who are these people that want to get Socrates, David? Is there a reason they want to go after Socrates? Well, that's an interesting question, Neil. We've got the names of three men who prosecuted Socrates. None of them are particularly well attested in the historical record other than specifically in the fact that they were the prosecutors at his trial. And beyond that, we really don't know who was supporting them. We know they probably had broader support. It was usually more than just three people who brought this kind of public interest charges in the Athenian legal system, but we don't know. We really don't know who decided Socrates had to go on trial or why. All right, Dave. So this brings us to the trial, and I love a good John Grisham novel as much as anyone else. So how does it go, David? The prosecutors are trying to bring him up on these corrupting and impiety charges, basically alluding to what he did with Alcibiades, but his defense is that they can't bring up these things specifically because of the laws that were put in place after all of these coups and revolutions and various political machinations. So how does it go, David? How does the trial go? Well, the prosecutors start by bringing up his more recent students because Socrates is a teacher and he hasn't stopped taking students just because of everything that's happened. So they start talking about how maybe he's corrupted more recent students who are going to be famous, guys like Plato or Xenophon. And Socrates obviously argues back that, you know, his current students are 
not at all impious and are great people and shouldn't be brought into this. But when he does so, the prosecutors keep on making references back to Alcibiades in ways that the jury and the people of Athens would have understood even though they never say his name. And this brings us to the dramatic climax of the trial. Now, Athenian trials are very different from the modern legal system. For one thing, there's no judges. There's just a jury. And at the end of the trial, the prosecutors say what they want the sentence to be. The defendant says what he thinks a fair sentence would be. And then the jury picks which one they're going with. Okay, so what do the prosecutors and the defendant come up with in this case? So the prosecutors want death. They want Socrates dead. Socrates makes his own speech, and he tries to make a joke. He says, Really, what would be fair would be for all of you to pay me. According to our sources, this does not go over well with the jury. Now the actual proposal he suggests is just that he be allowed to go free with no punishment, but by this point he's lost the jury, and when they vote it's not good for Socrates. I'm no lawyer, David, but yeah, joking when you're on trial for your life Probably not the smartest idea. So is this the end of Socrates, this death sentence? This is the end. Famously, Plato will write a moving description of Socrates drinking the hemlock that is the method that the Athenian government uses to execute criminals. But this is it. Socrates, the famous philosopher, the gadfly of Athens, goes down thanks to a long and convoluted path from the breaking off of a bunch of statues' penises 16 years before. It is quite the complicated story, David, and One that had a very unexpected starting. Thanks for telling us. Always happy to share these things, Neil. Well, it is that time in the podcast where we like to do a quiz or a game or something a little more fun and lighthearted. I've got one for you, David, all about Easter, as that is coming up this month. All right. All right, our first question. What day is believed to be the actual date of Jesus' crucifixion? Which, of course, is all wrapped up in the Easter story. It all revolves around Jesus' crucifixion. What day is believed to be the actual historical date that it happened? Well, why don't I guess April 30th, 34 AD? You're pretty close, actually. It was in April. April 3rd is the day they think it happened. Uh, That was 33 AD, April 3rd. All right, going from when it actually happened to when we celebrate it, When is Easter celebrated, David? Oh, man. It's something to do with the lunar calendar, isn't it? 
I've always thought this was unnecessarily complicated. It's actually the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Per- makes perfect sense, right? Not to me. <laughs> All right, question <laughs> number three in our Easter quiz. The idea of the Easter bunny originated in the 1700s in what country? Sounds like a German thing to me. It was. It was in Germany, and it was originally a hare. I don't know when it became a bunny or why. Question number four in our Easter quiz. The Good Friday earthquake in 1964 was the most powerful recorded earthquake in the history of North America with a Richter scale magnitude of what? I'll guess somewhere in, say, 5.1. Oh, you're not even close. It was 9.2. Absolutely massive. It hit Alaska and killed 139 people. Last question for you, David, here. Easter is named after an Anglo-Saxon goddess. Easter or Ostera, depending exactly how which legend you believe and how you pronounce it. Uh, but she is played by what Broadway star in the TV series American Gods? Broadway star. I'm going to guess Edina Menzel. Oh, very good. You know a Broadway star, and you're actually very close. It's actually Kristen Chenoweth, Indina Menzel's partner in the Wicked series. That question was really just for our sister, so we're just throwing that one out there. Thanks for playing along on our Easter quiz, David. Always glad to play along, Neil. And we hope you enjoyed this story. Please connect with us on social media, at WhenArtThou, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Follow our website, obrother.ca, for all of the podcast episodes, or you can get them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, SoundCloud, basically wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Stitcher, did I mention Stitcher? Listen to us wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and like our podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.